Hello, my name is Katherine Orison. I've written a couple books about Cecil Mill, and I'm working on a third at the present time. And so Paramount Studios was kind enough to give me the opportunity to talk with you all tonight about this particular wonderful silent movie. I happen to be a big fan of silent movies. I think in many ways they're a completely different art form from sound movies. And I hope I can impart some of my appreciation and love during the telling of this story. As you can see, a lot of the people that worked on this film, like Pev Marley there, who was one of the cinematographers, Ann Balkins, who was the cutter, worked with Mr. DeMille on the 1956 version of this film. There are also actors in this movie. Uh, for instance, Julia Fay, who plays the wife of Pharaoh, who was also in the 1956 version. Terrence Moore, who was called Pat, uh, worked on the 1956 version, but behind the scenes, not in front of the camera. Noble Johnson, you may remember, from King Kong. He was one of the chieftains. Estelle Taylor, I'll tell you about later. I'm sitting here looking at her name and thinking about it. There are a lot of people that you'll also see in other DeMille movies. Theodore Roberts was a particular favorite of Mr. DeMille's, and Mr. DeMille worked with him scores of times. Theodore Roberts was born in 1861 and died in 1928, and he was 62 when he played Moses in this epic. This is really two movies in one. The first is the prologue, which takes place in ancient Egypt. And then the second is the so-called modern story, which will look more like a period piece to our eyes. There is a very strong reason why Mr. DeMille chose to make the Ten Commandments at this time. There were several very big scandals that had just occurred in Hollywood, the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, Olive Thomas dying at the age of 21 on her honeymoon, uh, the William Desmond Taylor murder. All of these were swirling around Paramount players. DeMille had made 45 movies in 10 years prior to this, uh, and this is his first biblical epic, only one of six, and yet this is what he's remembered most for. The other thing is that they had just gotten through the worst world war that anyone could possibly imagine. Western civilization was shook to the core. It's hard for us to believe, but prior to World War I, everyone believed that civilization was getting better with every generation and that we were becoming more spiritual and we were moving into the future with great hope. But after World War I, people could not recover from that, and we realized that we were sliding backwards. If any of these scenes look familiar to you, there's a very good reason. DeMille duplicated this exact set in 1956 when he was in Egypt, and a lot of these scenes are exactly what he shot again in color in 1956. The set is identical even to the height and width this is Estelle Taylor, who's looking like Deborah Paget there. She is playing the sister of Moses, and she has a very big part in the moving and the shaking of things. You'll see how it all, it all shakes out as we go along. 
You'll notice the sphinxes are identical to the ones in the 1956 version. The Colossi of Ramses are identical, but if you look past the taskmaster there, you'll see a breast on the sphinx, which is incorrect. Paul Reeb was a great art director, and he's done a great job in this movie, but there are a couple little slips, and I can't resist pointing them out to you as we go along. You'll all remember that there was a sequence in the 56 version where they're building the city of Seti, and the men are pushing the blocks of stone. Miriam and uh, Yosha Bell and Deborah Paget playing uh, Lilia all run in and give water to the men as they're working. This is the same thing in the silent version. In a lot of ways, I prefer the silent version, and I'll tell you why. It looks like we are looking through a glass into the past. I think that the movie camera is the only time machine that has ever been made. You can talk all you want. Our only chance to see how people looked, dressed, thought, hoped, worked, is in the movie. Otherwise, you live in your own time, and it's an imagination thing. Coming forward towards the camera here is Pharaoh, a man named Charles de Rock is playing the Pharaoh, and about him we don't know too much because he did not go on and he did not like Estelle Taylor or Theodore Roberts or any of the rest of the players in this movie move on and become a big star, although I really love him in this movie. He looks more like Ramses than Yul Brenner, the actual Ramses. Yul Brenner looks like the carved-out stone effigies of Ramses, which were idealized by the Egyptian artists. But uh, Charles here looks just like Ramses really did, except he's much taller. Ramses was only 5'6". I had been told I, I gush over sets and costumes and details in art direction the way other women gush about babies. I'm afraid that I, I'm guilty as charged, but I absolutely love the verisimilitude, especially in a DeMille film where they work so hard to be historically accurate. Look at the jewelry he has on. Look at his headdress. Look at his kilt. Look at all of the paraphernalia around them. Everything is right on the money. They were shooting up above Santa Barbara on the beach at Guadalupe, California. It was the first time DeMille had really gone far away on location. Prior to this, they had shot in and around Los Angeles area, or they would go to the mountains for the Warrens of Virginia, or they would go to the desert for the Squaw Man. This time, he's further away than he's ever been, and the studio was so worried about it that they sent a telegram when they started getting the rushes back, and he was up there with all these people. I mean, look at the thousands of people he has. And the telegram said, you have lost your mind, come home immediately. Uh, he ignored it, and he kept shooting. And we have this wonderful, wonderful movie. It took vision, and it took guts. And as DeMille said, he and, he and uh, D.W. Griffith began in Hollywood making feature films at the same time. 
But Griffith had years of making short films back east before he attempted to make Birth of a Nation. Whereas DeMille, at the age of 32, comes out to California and just takes off. He hits the ground running. He starts with his first feature. It's a tremendous hit. It's the beginning of Paramount Studios. And like I said, in the 10 years between 1913 and 1923, he cranks out 45 feature films. I can't think of any director who has that kind of output then or now. This is the actor Theodore Roberts, and he was a big DeMille player. He's looking really old in the face, but if you notice that arm, he's strong and he's muscular. I love the pillars that they're leaning up against. Look at this throne. The little boy uh, to the, to the uh, right of Pharaoh is Terence Moore, like I said, called Pat. He and his brothers worked for DeMille as child actors and then worked for him when they were grown behind the camera. Pat Moore worked in the sound department and was a music editor. And his brother, Mickey Moore, known as Michael, but, uh, but always called Mickey, worked as an assistant director and prop man for DeMille in the sound era. Beautiful woman in the center that you just saw playing Pharaoh's wife is Julia Fay. Julia Fay was a longtime contract player for DeMille and a girlfriend. Julia was born in 1893 and died in 1966. Her entire career was spent at Paramount with Mr. DeMille. If you look at the throne room, you'll see some cats. And those cats, and those are big cats, the leopards and the lions and the tigers that you see on these sets were all provided by a lady named Olga Celeste. She and her husband were from Russia, and they were called lion tamers in those days. They had worked in the circus, and then they moved over into working into motion pictures. Olga Celeste provided the leopard for bringing up Baby, the Cary Grant movie in 1937. And I met her in the late 1960s, and she told me all about working with DeMille, and she was very proud that every time you saw a cat in a DeMille film, she said, I was on the set, those were my babies, and she said, and I always was proud about how well they did and how well we had trained them to handle all of the chaos that's on a movie set. You'll notice that he's quoting directly from the Bible when you see the titles. That is the King James Version of the Bible that DeMille grew up with and that in America and England people are most familiar with. Look at his outfit. Look at Pharaoh's outfit, it's gorgeous. There's Julia over there playing the Nefertiri role. If you are familiar with the 1956 version, you may remember a little old lady at the Passover who says, will it pass, will it pass, Moses? That is the same woman who's standing here looking like a million dollars as the Queen of Egypt.
The little boy, Terrence Moore, Pat Moore, who's playing the Pharaoh's son, uh, died just last year in his 90s. But before he did, he met the little boy, Eugene Mazzola, who played the same part in the 1956 version. I'm very happy that they were able to get together and reminisce. Both of them had nothing but high praise for Mr. DeMille and how easy it was to work for him, how happy they were on the set. Uh, none of those histrionics and none of the manipulation that you hear some child actors talk about. DeMille treated his child actors as though they were grown. Now, when you hear the music being played in the background here and you see the dance, remember that there really is music on every silent movie set as they're filming. This helps to get the actors in the mood. It helps to set up the rhythm of the film. And this particular instance where you see them playing, they are actually playing those instruments. Then when the movie goes out on the road in those days, in the teens and in the 20s, it went out with the music that had been written for it and either a piano, an organ, a small quartet or a large orchestra would duplicate the music so that you could be right on the set, you could see how they were feeling, you could get right into the mood of it. What is happening here, obviously, is the Passover night when the firstborn of Egypt are being killed and we are bringing little boy Moore in I love this lighting. The lighting is called, DeMille called Rembrandt lighting because in the old days, in the teens, the distributors in the theaters wanted to see everything lit so you could see every single little thing. And they said, if you don't light up the whole screen, people were only getting half the money's worth. And DeMille said, no, this is Rembrandt lighting. This is mood lighting and this makes a big difference. The throne room and the murals on the wall are duplicating, oddly enough, the Egyptian theater on Hollywood Boulevard where this movie premiered in 1923. It also re-premiered around 2001 when the Egyptian reopened on a particularly special December night. Now, this is just going to begin the wonderful exodus. And once again, everything is going to reflect the 1956 version. What DeMille did was very clever. If they came from left to right in the 23 version, the hordes went from right to left in the 1956 version. If they came towards the camera in the 56 version, they went away from the camera in the 1923 version. He's duplicating himself, but for his own little private quiet conceit, he's changing it like a reverse negative. So we're going to have the big exodus that was done up in Guadalupe and the set that was left behind in Guadalupe, California in 1923 and was bulldozed down 
into little pieces of plaster and chicken wire was dug up in the 1980s by a man named Peter Brosnan. He found a big toe, he found some bottles, he found some pieces of plaster, he found a horse's head. I think he was hoping and a lot of people were hoping that there would be something intact from the giant set, but unfortunately it had all been broken up and disintegrated over the decades. In this sequence with the God of Death, I'm not, again, I'm not happy with the art direction of Sokar. That little beetle head doesn't make me happy. In the 1923 version, they could get away with it. We weren't so familiar with, e with Egypt and the Egyptian gods, but by the 1956 version, they had Sokar with the bird's head, which is the way he really was. Now we're going to gather our flocks and gather our cattle and take off, and it's really gonna be fun. Again, beginning exactly like it does in the 56 version, it's supposed to be dawn. That is Joshua, who is front and center, who's directing all the tribes. If you could imagine all of these extras out there with all of these, with all of their cattle and all of the children and all of the, oh, I love this business with the goat. You're going to see children with animals that are duplicated in the 56 version. You're going to see the fighting with the donkey to get the donkey to get going. In 1956, the little boys that were trying to get the donkey going were Herb Alpert and his buddies, if you can believe that, as a child. In the 1923 version, you have some big stars, just your extras that are unbilled. One of them is Charles Farrell who became a big star in 1926 in Old Ironsides and then became Janet Gaynor's leading man in the late 20s. This moving out of the city, you can see exactly how DeMille has duplicated it. The frieze on the wall, the sphinxes, them moving down the center, what I love, though, is that these people are giving it hell, and they are really working hard. The wind is blowing off the ocean. The sand's going in their eyes, but it doesn't matter. They are excited, and they're, and they're moving forward. A lot of that is that DeMille has the advantage in the silent era of being able to talk to his extras, ask them what he wants to do, tell them the excitement of the moment, build them up, and direct them verbally. He loses that, as all silent movie directors did, when sound comes in. Then you just have to try to do it in rehearsal and hope that it works out when you start shooting. You'll notice that all of the tribes have their different banners, just like in the 56 version. I love the little sheep that are moving forward there. The camels, which of course are historically incorrect, but at that time they didn't even know that. And then there's that donkey that gets away and runs, runs over to the right.
the death of this child is going to resonate with anyone in a 1923 audience because so many men had died in World War I. That had been such a cataclysmic thing. 10 million boys died during World War I, and some 40 to 70 million died in the flu epidemic that swept the world right after the war that started in the trenches. There are a lot of people who are living through something that they couldn't even fathom when they were growing up. They had no idea that such a thing could possibly happen. When we get down to the chariots, we have Hollywood Wranglers and we have 600 chariots. We have more chariots in this version than we do in the 56 version. And they are really having a time driving them as you'll see when it comes up. All right, everybody's running in and we're going to jump in our chariots and we're gonna go after the Israelites. Notice that even when the gong is being sounded, even when people are running around, Olga's cats are very quiet and, and very serene and they're just sitting there cool as a cucumber. They were well-trained. Now, I love this, when they, when they go out, everybody backs out. You don't turn your back on the living God. And I love his shoes that are curled up at the end. Take a look at his shoes the next time you get a chance. They're putting the, the battle wings on him, which are again are identical to the ones that were on Yul Brenner. Now we are out in the desert. Unfortunately, um, American sand is white, whereas African sand is yellow, and sometimes when the sun is, is hitting it a, a certain way, orange. But no one knows that at this time, so the white sands of California are filling in for the Sahara Desert. I love how you can see how far away the people are. You can see them on the hill, and you can see them snaking their way towards us. Everybody having their little thing in their mind of who they are and where they're going and what's happening in their lives. And just try to think about coordinating all of this, getting all of this stuff up there, living in a tent. Here's, here's the donkey won't go, and there's the little boy on the front that Herb Alpert played in the 56 version. The little goat's going by. The Merriam part is sort of played by three different people in the 56 version. You'll see as we go along. I love those wonderful tent things that cover the camels that are for carrying children and, and high-born women. I love this woman holding her little goat and her little lamb. All of these things personalize it. It doesn't become just a mob scene with everybody milling around. You see little stories. In the 56 version, when this little girl was lost and looking for her parents, a man comes up and picks her up and says, I'll take you to them, little girl. DeMille was able to sort of rectify a couple of hanging threads from this movie when he remade it. Again, you can see all the thousands of people that he has. It must have been such a wonderful experience to have worked in the movie and to know that you're doing something so much fun and, and so important and that so many people are going to see. 
Now he says 600 chosen chariots and he isn't kidding. You're going to see 600 chariots and they're going to be all over the place. Egyptian chariots, look at that. Egyptian chariots are very hard to drive. Your horses can go in five different directions at once. You don't have any shafts that are holding them forward. They can turn around and go backwards. You can see that they are not liking any of this and it looks like the Santa Ana winds are blowing. But they'll get them all together and they'll take out after the Israelites and it'll be breathtaking and in some ways I think better than the 56 version. Here comes Pharaoh with his team of black horses and the hero chariot. Don't you love how he just stepped over that guy to get onto the chariot? That really makes a great point. I love how silent films can convey a great deal with a gesture or a movement or one picture. A picture really is worth a thousand words. And I try to, when I'm watching a silent movie, watch it with the 1923 frame of mind or whatever time that the movie was made, if it was 1915 or it was 1925. I try to erase everything that goes afterwards and put myself in that time and know how fantastic it is to see these images on the screen. For a lot of people all over the world, this was the first time they saw the Bible in pictures, moving, telling the stories that they'd heard as children in church, and here it is coming to life, and they're seeing that these people really existed. We have a chariot uh, down there, and unfortunately, it was so difficult dealing with these chariots and dealing with these horses that weren't accustomed to them that the chariot accidents really are chariot accidents. They're not done just for the camera. Do you see how many chariots we got coming from over there? Incredible. When they get to the Red Sea, things are really going to be interesting because I think the parting of the Red Sea is better in the 23 version, and I'll tell you why when we get there. And I also like God better in the 1923 version, and I'll tell you why then, too. This is, a, again, the exact same setup as in the 56 version where they're at the Red Sea and they see Pharaoh's chariots coming. If this footage looks the least bit familiar to people who are not familiar with silent film, a lot of the chariot sequences from this movie were reused in the 1934 Cleopatra that DeMille made with Claudette Colbert, Warren William, and Henry Wilcoxon. Especially that scene right there. We're in the truck and we're going past the chariots. And when the chariots come over a sand dune, all of that was used in the battle sequences of Cleopatra. This was extremely dangerous coming over the sand dune. And uh, again, our accidents are real accidents. They're not rigged for the camera. This sequence where they're coming in, you really get a sense of how many chariots you have and how many warriors you have. This is the Pacific Ocean on the right, and we have all the people clamoring to Moses, screaming and yelling about 
we're up the creek and we're stuck here. And he's like, nope, you're going to see something fantastic. And when the Red Sea was parted in 1923 in this film, no one had seen anything like it. It was state-of-the-art for special effects. And a lot of people spent decades asking DeMille, how did you do it? How did you do it? And he was very closed-mouthed. He felt that when you told people how something was done, that it took the magic away. Another shot that was used in Cleopatra. Also, some of this was used in Sign of the Cross, some of the closer stuff. We're on a dry lake bed here, which is especially ideal for the horses and to get real speed up. And you see how they're just tearing along. We've got an art direction mistake here where you have the banners that are denoting the different tribes of Israel and you have the Star of David on top of the banners. <laughs> David hasn't been born yet and we haven't gotten to Israel yet. Like I said, there are a couple of little art direction mistakes and I can't resist them. In a way, they make it even more dear to me. They make it even more special. And at the time, I'm certain that people who were watching it when they saw the Star of David, it was like, oh yes, that's right, they're Israelites. Of course it would be there. But historically, it wouldn't. Now here come the chariots and God will stop them. And he will stop them with a pillar of fire. In the 1956 version, the pillar of fire was animated. And even at eight years old, I was disappointed in that. I was very aware that it was an animated fire. And I wasn't impressed because I'd seen so many very sophisticated animated movies. But you see, in this version, you have real fire and you have this double negative thing happening. And I absolutely believe that God has put this curtain of fire that's going to prevent the chariots from harming the children of Israel. It's beautifully done. It, it works. It works for me much better than the 56. Just because something is made earlier doesn't mean it's more primitive and doesn't mean they haven't worked every bit as hard and in many, in many cases done every bit as good a job as later on when you had widescreen and stereo and technicolor and all that stuff. Now we're parting the Red Sea. Look how beautiful this is. Just gorgeous. I'm absolutely convinced that the sea is parting. Nicely, nicely done. And then you have, beautiful, you have on either side what was jello, believe it or not. Uh, water with jello in it, and the jello would then melted to make the sea come back in. You have a lot of these shots of the astonished children and women watching it happen, which were duplicated in the 56 version by other people. And we're now gonna go into the water and it's going to be absolutely convincing. It looks like there's a hand holding back the two pillars of water. And it looks like there's real fire holding the chariots back. You're gonna see certain people that you know, one is Dathan, one is Miriam, and one is Joshua. 
Uh, and it'll become much more apparent when we get to Sinai and we have the golden calf sequence. Now, when we see the parting of the Red Sea, there was a point in the mid-20s when DeMille was in a lawsuit and he was in court and the judge stopped him and said, listen, you know, we'll get to this lawsuit later. I want to know how you parted the Red Sea. And DeMille said, well, it's sort of like pushing a spoon into hot pudding. And that was the only thing he would tell the judge about how he did this. For me, I believe absolutely everything I'm seeing because it looks like the water is just barely being held back. You see the, the walls shaking so that there's like a hand there and you see some water sort of going through the fingers of the hand as they're walking across the Red Sea. Now here, Pharaoh is not going to stand for anything. And I've, I've been told by people, why doesn't Pharaoh get it? He's been, he sees the water being parted by God. He sees the pillar of fire preventing him. Is he just a total idiot that he thinks he can run into it? Well, you have to remember that Pharaoh is God too. From the moment that Ramses was born to the moment he died, he was told that he was the great God of Egypt, that he was the living God, that he was descended from the creating God of all the earth. So he's not going to be afraid of somebody else's God. He thinks he's every bit as powerful as Moses' God. He's not going to hesitate. He's going to go right on. I've had people say that when they saw the 56 version, they had a lot of trouble with the fact that Yul Brenner doesn't seem to get it. He seems to be ignoring that. Well, that's okay because, once again, you have to remember, all of the pharaohs of Egypt were told that they were God. They weren't a God. They were God. And so he's going to pit his self up against them. So you're going to see him roaring right into the breach because he's sure that the water will be held back for him as well his entire life. Everything has gone his way, and the Red Sea's always parted for him. So here, they're running right in, and you see this shot? It's exactly the same as the shot in the 56 version, except that it was Henry Wilcoxon in the chariot, and Yul Brenner stayed on the shore because Ramses was not killed by the water coming in on the charioteers. And you see all 600 of them there. You see your driver? And you see the water is going to come right in on top of them. A lot of these shots, again, of the people looking in horror, of them watching what God is doing, are duplicated in the 56 version. And here's the point where anyone who believes in God and anyone who is sitting in this movie or has gone to their church social to see this movie in 1924 or 25, they're thinking, I'm so lucky. I believe and God loves me and now I'm going to see exactly how God is going to be my salvation. And graphically, right in front of us, DeMille duplicates Doré's rendering of the parting of the Red Sea and of the inundation of Pharaoh's army. Look at how beautiful that is. I like it. I like that much better than the 56 version. It comes in and it just vroom, takes them out. And then we have this shot of 
the little horses and the chariots, and they look just like toys, and again, that one bothers me. <laughs> in the 56 version, we had the real people in a tank spinning by the camera. But other than that, it's pretty wonderful. And you see the look of awe, and you see Theodore Roberts really giving it. I love him. He is a wonderful stage actor and a wonderful silent movie actor, and your eye goes to him, and you know what he's saying. You don't need titles to know what these people are saying, feeling, and doing. The Lord is one. The Lord is God. Blessed be to God. Now, we have a great shot behind this title of Sinai. DeMille had not gone to Egypt prior to this movie as he did in the 56 version. He went to Egypt several times. I think the first time was in 1931. We all know what Sinai looks like and they had photographs. And we're going to go on the sound stage now and we're going to duplicate the golden calf sequences and being up on Sinai on the sound stage rather than out on location. They got him back home now. Again, we know exactly what's happening. We don't need to see titles of his speech or what he's saying. We know the story. And the goal of a silent film is to tell the story in pictures with as few titles as possible. And the wonderful thing about silent movies is it's interactive. If you aren't watching and paying attention every moment, if you're not with the actors and if they're not able to convey what they're thinking and what they're going through, you're not going to sit there. You're going to walk right out. I love God here. Again, he's not an animated pillar of light. He's a wonderful, majestic pillar of fire, exactly the way I pictured it as a child. And he's giving the Ten Commandments here. It's beautifully done. Like I said, I think it's better than the sound version. And can you imagine being a child of like nine or 10, seeing this in 1923? It must have been awe-inspiring. Now, God is going to give Moses the Ten Commandments. And I love the way God tells him what the commandment is. And Moses strikes the rock, and he carves the tablets. That makes perfect sense. That's probably the way it really was. Now we're going to go down to the golden calf. Oh, boy, I can't wait. And the golden calf in this one <laughs> is a doozy. Estelle Taylor playing Miriam is going to come to the forefront now. In, in some ways, again, the orgy's better in this one. And the reason being is that silent films were an adult medium. There was no code at that time. Children couldn't go to silent films because they're going to be bored to tears. They're going to say, what's going on? Read that to me, etc. And like I said, this is an interactive thing. You have to be watching the movie all the time. You can't be talking. You can't be listening to your cell phone. You can't be eating popcorn. You have to concentrate, and you have to be projecting your own thoughts onto the actors and onto the scene. A lot of people 
became very good lip readers and they would follow the action when the actors were speaking and follow the words that way and didn't need titles. The other thing is, is that a lot of people have different voices in their mind for these actors, which is why when sound came in, some actors failed and some didn't. It wasn't a question of they had poor voices. They simply had voices that didn't record or didn't sound like their persona. Mr. Roberts never made a sound film, but I have a feeling he had a good, strong stage actor's voice. Now, Miriam is now playing the Joan Woodbury part, <laughs> where she is making the golden calf beautiful and shiny with her hair. You have Joshua all upset about this, and you're going to have Dathan and you're going to have Miriam sort of running the show when we start dancing around and we start having the orgy. The orgy is going to be even better, I think, because you've got a full orchestra on the set. They will start playing and people will have actual music to dance to and they will be able to choreograph it and it'll look like wild hedonistic dancing. It'll be great. And it'll look like they're really worshiping the golden calf. Meanwhile, we're cutting back and forth and not only is this an unusual way to do it at that time, but it's exactly the way they did it in 56, where sometimes we see the orgy, sometimes we're back up with Moses on the mountain and God giving him the Ten Commandments. The reason DeMille emphasized this was he said, if you break the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments will break you. That law for mankind is the beginning of civilization and is the most important thing to set your feet on the right path. I hope you're listening to this wonderful kind of fun music that the organ's playing in the background. I think it's very appropriate and it really gets me in the mood. I prefer the golden calf in the 56 version. It's a little more Egyptian looking and has more art to it, but there's something kind of wild and strange and scary about this particular golden calf. You're kind of repulsed by it. I've learned to, to look forward to it when, when it comes on screen. It was also put on top of the roof of the Egyptian theater for the premiere and stayed up there for some time. You can see photographs of the Egyptian theater taken in 1923, and you can see this funny little gold thing over there on the right-hand side. Next time you, you see pictures of the theater or postcards, look for it, because it's there. Moses is almost through with the Ten Commandments, but it's not going to be in time to stop what's going on downstairs at the foot of Sinai. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. These are all things that the audience are going to know by heart and see, actually see them a lot of times there weren't theaters in small towns across America, so churches would order this film and run it in the church on a big sheet, and people would sit in the pews and watch the sermons that they had grown up with, 
the book they had grown up with and the stories they'd grown up with, watch them and for the first time actually see the history. Like I said, I, I think that the movie camera is the only time machine that's ever been invented. And when you're looking at a historical film, and in my case, when I'm watching a silent film that's of historical basis, it's almost like being there. I don't feel it's 1923, I feel it's 33 BC. Now he's going to take the tablets and he's going to come around Sinai on the right-hand side, where is in 1956, of course, Charlton Heston comes around on the left-hand side. DeMille is matching, but he's flipping it. Look at the coordination here. Look at the dancing. Oh, God, I love Estelle when she throws off her cape, and there she is in all of her glory. Estelle Taylor was married to Jack Dempsey at the time she made this movie and she was a big star all through the silent era. She was born in 1894 and she died in 1958. I think her marriage to Dempsey did not last but a year or two after the making of this movie they lived right in Hollywood. Now you can do some things in silent films that you can't do in sound films, not even after the code. So you're going to see a couple of things that are going to be pretty racy for that time and are going to be kind of eye-opening. But again, because you couldn't have little children reading or, or being able to sit through a two and a half hour movie, it's for adults and adults can handle it. This is the Datham character making love to the Miriam character here. And now comes a very important point. It's in the Bible that Miriam was punished by becoming leprous. And this is a very important point in 1923 and it's going to figure all through the movie when we go to the modern version. It also happened to Moses when he was up talking to the burning bush. God showed him that he could make him clean, he could make him leprous, and he could make him clean again. In 1923, people were very familiar with leprosy. We're not so much now. And in 1923, they didn't know what caused it, and there was no cure. So it was a tremendous fear in biblical times and into the 20th century. 20th century has eliminated a lot of scourges and that's one of them. The idea is, is that God punishes us in his own way for our wrongdoing. Now we just got everything in the world going on down there. And Moses is going to really take care of it. Again, it's going to be really substantial. It's, you're not going to be disappointed when the wrath of God hits these people. 
I like to think of everybody on the soundstage, everybody working, the music going, DeMille talking to them all through the megaphone. Theodore Roberts is absolutely wonderful. I, I'm absolutely convinced he's Moses. And in his own way, he's completely different from Charlton Heston. Heston was very young, and they didn't know if he could do it. When they started out, he proved them right in believing in him, but I like an older man. I like this 60-year-old playing a 60-year-old. Now there's gonna be an earthquake, and there's gonna be lightning, and everybody is going to get theirs for not believing in Moses' word and turning away from God. Look at all the details. I love that big jar down there. I love everything that they have on. Now Miriam is asking for forgiveness and asking to be clean. Once again, a very important plot point that will come up later. At this point, when people are watching it, they think, oh, this is just the way it was in the Bible, and they don't know that it's going to figure in the next story that they're going to see. Wow! And it's over, and it's bang. And that lightning was gorgeous. There's a little tiger skin up there on the rock. I guess that's where Miriam was carrying on with Dathan. We've got the fire going. It must have been hot on that set. We got the wind machines going. And yet, we're not milling around. Everyone has a purpose. They're scared. They're going to Dathan for help. They're running to Moses. They're asking for forgiveness. They're crying. Everybody has been given their special thing to do by Mr. DeMille personally. There's a lightning again, wonderful lightning. You see the golden calf and you see the dead people under the stones. Now we transition here into what's called the modern story in 1923. To our eyes, watching it in the 21st century, this is going to be more dated probably than the 3300 B.C. part, because we're so familiar with Egypt now. We've seen so many movies made in Egypt and about Egypt, and we know so much about Egypt's history through all the archaeological discoveries in the past hundred years, that this is sort of like going back further in time. It's so different from our time. But in some ways, I love this every bit as much because I see how people lived, how they thought, how they felt. Also, there's different styles of acting in silent films. And DeMille's actors are very, very good. They're, they don't overdo it. They're subtle. He was a master at modern comedy, uh, kind of a French farce type of thing, as well as all the other kinds of movies he made. So when he gets into the modern story, believe it or not, at this point in his career and his life, he's 42 years old. And like I said, he's made 45 films. He's made more films than he's lived, if you want to do one a year. Uh, he's more at home in this sequence. 
Now, what I like to do is when I'm watching these things, because I was an art director and I was a set decorator in low-budget films in my youth, I love to look at all the details behind the actors as well as watch the actors. I look at all the things on the shelves in the kitchen. I look at the tablecloths. I look at how they're dressed. I look at how the men really wear their hair, not how we thought they wore their hair, but how they really did. You have two very good actors working in this sequence. One of them is Rod LaRock. He's playing the younger son who is talking to his mother right now and who is on the wrong path. This is a Cain and Abel story. And the younger son here is going to get into a lot of trouble. And we're going to live the Ten Commandments through these two sons. Rod LaRock married Vilma Bankey in 1926. Vilma Bankey was a big star. She looked like an American Beauty Rose, but she was really from Hungary. And Rod LaRock worked in films in front of the camera until around 1941. Then he turned to directing movies, and he, incredibly enough, directed two movies where he hired Henry Wilcoxon, who was a big star and the producer of the 1956 DeMille version of The Ten Commandments. Richard Dix, who's playing the older brother, made an easy transition into sound and was known as the Great Stone Jaw. He had a voice that matched his face and his persona exactly. It was very deep and it was very American. And when he came into sound film, he made a, a big movie that was nominated for Best Picture in one called Cimarron. He played Western heroes, as you can see, he's got this great kind of hawk face. DeMille has types that he likes. He has leading men who resemble each other through the decades. In addition to the fact that he uses the same men over and over as they go in from juvenile parts to leading men to character actors to elderly actors, he's using them over and over. He was very loyal. He loved actors, and he loved acting because he'd been an actor on the stage when he was young. He understood the process. He liked working with them on motivation. He's talking to them. He's telling them how he feels about their part in their character. He's telling them how to think with their eyes and their face and their body. You use your body, you use your hands, you use your face to convey what you're saying and what's going on in silent movies. I love that. We know exactly what's going on here. We know that there's an argument going on. We know what the argument's about. We really don't have to read the titles to understand what's happening with these three people. We understand that mother is deeply religious. And think about it. She's born before cars planes, telephones, electric lights. So she's sort of a stranger in a strange land in the 20th century right after World War I. The Jazz Age is starting. 1923 is a very interesting time. For the very first time, women have gotten the vote in the 1920s. For the very first time, women have cut their hair. There are tremendous changes. Prohibition has come in and all of the world wants to forget the war and they want to party. And sort of the 20s are one giant party. 
Now we're being introduced to our leading lady in the modern version. And the leading lady is a wonderful actress named Leatrice Joy. Leatrice Joy was born in 1899 and she died in 1985. She had a long, full life. At the time she made this movie, she was married to John Gilbert, the big silent screen star at MGM. They also had a beautiful daughter. Now she is going to represent the modern woman and she's going to pick up kind of where the ancient story left off and you'll see exactly how that'll work out. I love this kind of owl wagon. Again, this is a place where people are going to come in, they're going to get a quick bite to eat. These were middle-class places to eat. When I see rain in a movie like this, you got to remember that the film is very slow, the lights are very bright, and it has to be really raining for it to show up on this film. So they're getting drenched. My favorite thing to do when I'm looking at the men's clothes is I'm looking at the hats, the way they wear them, which is so delightful. People, when they are doing period films now, don't wear the hats like that. This is a hat, it's his. He knows how to wear it and make it look jaunty and cute. Makes him young, it's special. As you can see, Leatrice Joy is a very good actress. We all have been hungry and we all understand her needing something to eat. This is the sort of meeting cute for her and the younger brother, Rod LaRock. Rod LaRock, as you can see, is a very good actor and Henry Wilcoxon said that he was delightful to work with as a director. We're on the Paramount back lot here, really making it rain. And you can see how really wet everybody is. This little boy in the rain is Roscoe Carnes. That is not someone that we are familiar with and we know now, but he became a nice little character actor in the 1930s. In addition, his son plays Jimmy Stewart's brother in the 1946 It's a Wonderful Life, the brother that it's so important that he saves so that the brother can go and be a World War II war hero. A lot of people don't know that Roscoe Carnes' son is, is that man, and Roscoe Carnes is just, a, just an extra, just a boy in the rain in this movie. But it's a beginning, and by the early 30s, he's, he's co-starring with Gary Cooper. Now, we see how they live, and we see how they dress, and the idea that DeMille is trying to convey is, is that these people are the same as the people that we have seen in the ancient times. They have the same desires, wants, needs. He wants to parallel them. I'm looking at the carpentry shop back there, and it's very symbolic. Of course, he's purposely made his hero a carpenter. There's a reason for that. 
and the carpentry shop is off of the house. People lived above the store. People had their houses next to where they worked. It all worked in beautifully. You can see that Richard Dix is falling in love with the girl. But of course, this being a Cain and Abel story, there's going to be a lot of conflict over the fact that two men love the same woman. There's Roscoe Carnes in the rain. And you notice that even that little tiny bit that Roscoe Carnes had, he pops right out. He knows what he's doing in front of a camera. You got it really clear when, when he's talking to Rod LaRock. You know exactly what's happening. You don't need a title. Now we find out that Leatrice is there because of Rod LaRock. And Richard Dix is going to have to step back because he loves his brother. And even though he's falling in love with Leatrice Joy, he will step back and let the brother take over. Now this title is referring to Eleanor Glenn, the famous writer. Eleanor Glenn was the woman who coined it. Clara Bow had it. She was the it girl. Gary Cooper had it. He was the it boy. Uh, there were movies made about it. Basically, what Eleanor Glenn was talking about was sex appeal. If someone had it, they had sex appeal. You were looking at that time for actors and actresses who had it. And she was writing short stories, she was writing novels, and movies were being made about her stories, and she was considered the up-to-date modern woman of the 1920s. So you look at the title card now and you're going, who is that? That's what that's all about. And young kids, teenagers, people in their 20s, you know, Roscoe's still sitting out there in the rain, freezing to death, are going to aspire to be with it, to be cool, to be it. Now, the fact that Mother says grace at the table, and notices what's going on, looks kind of stilted. But again, we understand everybody's character that way. We understand that Rod LaRock doesn't want to listen to Mother, thinks he's modern, doesn't want to have to put up with this nonsense, and that Richard Dix is a good son and listens to his mother and wants only the best for everyone. Now here, they're going to start playing records and dancing, which looks very innocent to our eyes. But we've got to remember that in the 1920s, the whole dancing thing, the kind of dances that were being done, the Charleston, the Black Bottom, all of that kind of thing, was very radical. Before, in the 19th century, you had the waltz, you had the minuet. The fact that people were dancing around like this, dancing to jazz, jumping around, it looked hedonistic. 
to someone who was born in the 19th century. It would look hedonistic to a lot of people across the country in little tiny towns at that time. Of course, the parallel is, is that the Israelites danced around the golden calf. So someone who's deeply religious and has just read the story to their sons is not gonna be happy with this dancing and carrying on in her living room. Once again, you want to watch the movie with a 1923 frame of mind. The other thing is we got a chance to talk about the artistry of silent film. I love the artistry. I think in many ways it's a combination of dance, music, and painting. Paintings that come alive. A lot of times DeMille would do his setups and his historical films duplicating a famous painting that had been published in a book. A lot of the prologue from the 1923 version and then all of the 1956 version is duplicating the Doré engravings that were in Bibles that DeMille grew up with. And in the case of the girls and the men in the modern version, he's duplicating the way that you saw advertisements at that time. He's duplicating covers of Cosmopolitan, Ladies Home Journal, the way they're doing the hair, the way they're doing the makeup, the way that the houses are set up. For the first time in the 20s, you had these glossy, full-color magazines coming out, and they were filled with all the wonderful things you could buy and all the wonderful places you could go to and all the wonderful cars that can take you to those wonderful places. In the 1920s, you had the very first passenger airline, and DeMille had one of them, Mercury Airlines. You had electric light and telephone going across the country. As you can see, Richard Dix has bought his favorite girl a beautiful ring. But there's going to be a misunderstanding here. She thinks that Richard Dix is speaking on behalf of his brother. And so Dix, who has spent all of his money on this ring, is going to quietly step aside. And you see it registering on his face. You see, he doesn't want to disappoint her. You see, he doesn't want to hurt his brother. And he's just going to hand the ring over and pretend that it's from his brother. And his brother, who's not nefarious, is going to just go along with it. Okay, fine. And he's going to wind up with the girl that Richard Dix loves. She takes it. She's thrilled. She thinks she's engaged. And Richard Dix just has to live with it. But he's a nice guy, see? He's not going to hurt either one of them, even though he's terrifically hurt. We got a nice little thank you from the brother, but that's about it. <laughs> And that's it. We see the whole setup and how their lives are going to go. And he's gonna spend how long paying for that ring? 
Don't you just love it? $2 a week for the ring. Gracious sakes. It's $200 a month now. If you could find a ring like that. No telling what's on, on the phonograph. And it disturbs mother greatly. But she wants her son to be happy and she realizes that they're going to get married and that will make her happy. It was a very big deal in 1923 to actually see people kiss. D.W. Griffith would tell his actors to pretend to kiss and they would turn away from the screen. And you would think they were kissing, but they weren't. DeMille is not so much of a prude. He's born a little bit later, 1881. And so, you actually see people kiss in a DeMille film. That was very big deal. And of course, mother's going to quote from the Bible about you don't dance and sing on Sunday, and they know better. But they want to make her happy, and they want for her to understand that they're young, they're in love, and they're enjoying themselves, and they didn't mean any harm. Oh, good. I got those Sunday blues. I, <laughs> I wish I knew the song. It's obviously a tip-off to everybody in the audience exactly what was playing. So that's the end of that. I'm looking out the window. I'm looking behind them at the walls. It's a lot of fun in silent movies when you get the gist of it, you know what's happening, to get the atmosphere. And it puts you more into the time. Mother looks, I guess, maybe in her 50s here. So we have to think of her as being born around 1865, 1870, tremendous change has happened so that we should have compassion for her and we should be able to understand. But this movie makes a very good point. We think that the generation gap is only with the generation that we grow up with. We think our parents are the only ones who don't understand and aren't with it. But I think every generation of the 20th century felt that way, especially this particular generation. They're so much different from their growing up from when this woman was growing up. I love Leatrice's delicate little dress. I mean, there's nothing scandalous about it, but you see how mother dresses. It's completely different. Long sleeves, not short sleeves. Collar all the way up her neck not down at her collarbone. It's obviously a light colored, not black. And there's the difference. DeMille's making a point about, you can't be too harsh with someone and expect them not to sort of like a mule go the other way. And that's what's happened with this younger son. This scenario was written by a woman named Jeannie McPherson, who wrote a great many of DeMille's silent films. 
She believed in reincarnation, and so there's a wonderful little reincarnation movie that they made called Road to Yesterday. She was very much into historical facts and dramas, and so there's usually a historical prologue to a lot of her movies. She was very good. He was surrounded by a great many women throughout his professional career. He worked with the same film cutter his entire career. He worked with Jeannie McPherson uh, until she died. He works with the same actresses and actors all the way through. He has the same field secretary all of his life. There's a great deal of loyalty there, and there's also a, an acknowledgement that professional women get the job done. There's equal opportunity on a DeMille set and in the DeMille office for the women. That's very unusual. Just 20 years before, women weren't secretaries. Suddenly, they're not only secretaries, they're film editors, they're actresses, they're writers, they're working in the costume department. Tremendous opportunities. Everything opened up with getting the vote and the end of World War I and the fact that so many women had dedicated themselves during the war in the nursing profession and in the manufacturing profession. Now, Mother is just absolutely torn about her, her younger son going off like this. But she's handled it wrong, and she will come to see the error of her ways. All of this would be expository dialogue in a sound film. It's done with pantomime. It's done a little slowly, but this is a chance to catch our breath between everything that we've seen before and everything that's going to come up, because this movie's going to take off again in the strangest of directions, and you're not going to be able to take your eyes off of it. This is our one breather between the two big stories. We understand that Richard Dix is torn, but he's going to step aside. He's talking about, I'm just a carpenter, and of course, Mother loves the fact that he's a carpenter. A lot of good men have been carpenters. Now, this title informs us that it's three years later. So that instantly tells the audience that probably they were watching 1919 or 1920 when we were seeing the setup with the two brothers and their mother, and that now it is absolutely 1923. We see that Dan's become a contractor and his younger brother has become an engineer architect. I think it's very interesting that DeMille has chosen these two professions for these brothers because a great deal of what's going on in California for the past 100 years has been unscrupulous development overdevelopment and crooked contracting. It rains in, in Southern California and houses fall down. 
So this is making the point that this has always been the case, unfortunately, that it's a tremendous area for graft and corruption then as now, and unfortunately, probably into the future. We can see that Rod LaRock is doing very well. He's sitting around in his house in his tuxedo, for heaven's sakes. He's going to be building this giant cathedral. And unfortunately, he's not going to be building it correctly. You'll see what I mean by that when we get to it. I love the fact, but we're building this church on filled ground. You can't do that in San Francisco. You can't do it in earthquake country because it's not going to be stable enough for the weight of a cathedral. Here's Leatris Joy in the height of fashion of 1923. And you can see the house is the absolute epitome of what a rich person's house at that time would be. The period of 1914 to 1924 is interesting. Art Nouveau stopped with the beginning of World War I. Art Deco didn't start until 1925 in the great exhibition in Paris that Cedric Gibbons attended and brought back uh, to use in all of the slick MGM movies of the day. So you have a kind of 10-year period in film where the decor isn't Art Nouveau, it isn't Deco, it's sort of in between, it's a transitional period, and it seems to be a combination of American Gothic revival and Spanish mission revival. You're going to have big stone fireplaces, you're going to have tile floors, you're going to have substantial Renaissance-looking furniture. A lot of this house looks a great deal like DeMille's office house, 2010 DeMille Drive, where he would work in the morning before he went to the studio. He took over Charlie Chaplin's house, 2010, and he joined it to his house, which was on the same hill on the other side, on the east side of the hill in Lachlan Park. And so when you went into his office, which was the living room of the 2010 house, it looked a great deal like this. It had the wonderful velvet draperies, the tapestries, the great stone fireplace, the mantel cloth. It had the same kind of furniture. I have a chair that looks very much like Rod LaRock's chair that he's sitting in right there. And I bought it at the MGM auction in, 19, in 1970. And it had come right off the sets of MGM movies from the 20s. I love the way men dress then. Here's, here's Richard Dix in a three-piece suit with that beautiful tie. I love the way women are dressing. The skirts are above their ankles, but they're form-fitting and they're casual. Now, Richard Dix is talking about jute, and you may not be familiar with what jute is and why Richard Dix would not be happy about it. It was used as a filler when mixing concrete by unscrupulous builders then and unfortunately in some places of the world now. It meant that you didn't have to mix as heavy a concrete and use as much concrete as you ordinarily would. You could save money in the wrong place. 
And where that jute comes from and what comes with that jute is going to be a key plot point. You have to have a little bit of knowledge of how they built at that time and what all these things mean when you're watching it. Um, they would instantly in 1923. I don't think too many people pay attention now. It's unfortunate to how things are built. I live in a 1928 building built by DeMille for rental property, and it has these wonderful old plaster walls, and it has a tile roof, and it has archways in the uh, doorways, and I love it because it's well-built and it's stood, and when it rains, it doesn't leak, and when there's an earthquake, it doesn't fall down. So he practiced what he preached. Notice that that drapery is hanging over the banister on the second floor. That was the thing to do in the 20s when you were decorating. You had lots of deep, plush pillows on the sofa, and you always had the banister draped either with a tapestry or a shawl or a beautiful piece of satin like that. And notice Leatrice's hair, my gracious. She must have been sitting in the chair getting her hair done that way for about 12 hours. Very elaborate with the braiding, the curling, and the permanent. It looks like it's a Renaissance tapestry behind the boys there. You'll see it again. Now here comes the greatest entrance for a film fatale that I have ever seen. The first time I saw this movie, it just knocked me back. We're supposed to be on the docks at San Francisco, and these are the bales of the jute. And we see something is inside one of the bales. I can hear DeMille on the set. Now watch her hands. See how those hands are coming out of there? I believe that Gloria Swanson referenced those hands and these gestures that Nita Naldi is using in this movie for Sunset Boulevard. You might want to stop the DVD run it back and take a look at that again. And you'll see those hands and that hand gesture later in the movie. Nita Naldi was a discovery of John Barrymore Sr. and she first appeared in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1920. She was one of three or four great vamps of the time, Theta Barra being one of the others, as well as Pola Negri. And they were, they were the quintessential vamps. Like I said, I think because Gloria Swanton didn't play vamps in the 20s that she took a good look at Nita Naldi in this movie. Now, the church that you see here is actually in San Francisco. It was being worked on at the time in 1923 when DeMille and his, and his location unit went up there. And you can go to that church today. It is on Washington Square, right across from Washington Square Park. Now we're supposed to be in the little kind of like shack that you, the contractor and the, and the builders sit in, which is adjacent to wherever they're building. 
and that's that's where Rod LaRock is hanging out. But as we can see from his reaction, he has not bought that beautiful pearl necklace for his wife. Here's Roscoe Carnes again. You can see a kind of resemblance to Jimmy Stewart's younger brother if you look right at his face. Now, Sally Lung is Nita Naldi. That is, that's where we put the connection of the two together. We're going to see this Sally walk in. We're going to see her hands, and we're going to know it's the same person that we just saw cut herself out of that jute sack on the docks of San Francisco. She looks very Chinese here. I think they did not want to use Anna Mae Wong as a villain in Hollywood. She was considered and voted one of the 10 most beautiful women in the country in the 1920s. And of course, Anna Mae Wong was born right in Los Angeles in 1905. So they had a tendency, if you had a villainous part and the person is supposed to be oriental in any way, they would have someone else play the oriental for that reason. You wanted to have Anna Mae Wong play a cute little Chinese girl or a sympathetic Madame Butterfly part or she would dance exotically, but she would not be this out-and-out -out villain that Sally Lung in this movie is. Nita Naldi looked very contemporary in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but here she's really giving it everything. Look at that coat, folks, and look at the orchid on the <laughs> sleeve of the coat. It's fantastic. Here is uh, Leatrice in a fur skirt. It's obviously made out of mink. Look at that skirt. Also the sleeves. This is not unusual at the time. If you have a lot of money, you flaunt it. You wear a mink skirt. You wear this gorgeous chinchilla coat. You wear huge orchids. Here's the confrontation scene between Leatrice and Nita Naldi. She's putting two and two together, and she's going to realize that she is not number one in her husband's life. And that's a difficult thing for anyone to put up with, but it's especially scandalous in 1923. Divorce was not looked kindly upon in that era. You married, you married for life. And Roscoe has got to let them know what's going on. He, he did the best he could. Now we're outside on the streets of San Francisco. You can see the wind is blowing. There's the actual church and Richard Dix is at the top. Anybody who's ever seen the Fountainhead is going to recognize a couple of shots and the thing is, is that DeMille did it first. 25 years later, when the Fountainhead was made, everyone talked about how King Vidor had done this wonderful shot at the top of the building where you can see Gary Cooper up there waving down to everybody. Well, here it is with Richard Dix 25 years earlier. Also, when they go up in the little elevator that's on the outside of the construction, they look out over San Francisco and you see the elevator going up. It was done for real 
on this set. It was done as a process shot in 1948 in the Fountainhead. I think it's much more effective here. The critics in 1948 said, what a great shot. Gee, it really gave you a feeling of going up in the air and, and being at a construction site. And here it is, way before, especially that shot there, which you can see, 1923 San Francisco, going right up. As you can tell, we are actually at the top of the building. You can see all of San Francisco behind the actors. You can feel the wind that's coming in off the water up at that height. The incredible thing and the nice thing about a silent movie camera is it's not racking focus. Our people in the foreground are, are in focus and the background, you can make out actual buildings. Look at that, you can actually see all of San Francisco at the time. What amazes me is look at, look at the streets. There's almost nothing on the street. People walked, there are very few cars. You're going to see a trolley, a cable car go by. You're going to see a horse cart because gardeners and milkmen used horse carts. But there's, there's not the huge traffic in the streets at that time. Even though the streets are nice and wide and you can do that, most people could not afford a car. It took a, a lot of money. It was like $500 for a car in those days. And most people made perhaps $5 a week. I love looking out over San Francisco and seeing exactly the way it was. Like I said, it's like looking through a time machine. There are people out there living their lives. We're on a real location. They may be shooting on a Sunday morning, but even then, that's, that's remarkable. Again, beautifully done, an incredible stunt. We know we're up there. We're not on a set. The actors are working right before our eyes. We're out on an actual construction site, we can tell that. If you look over their shoulders at various points, you're going to see actual landmarks of San Francisco that are still there. San Francisco is very good about preserving its heritage. You'll see the Embarcadero. Like I said, you can see, you can see this actual church. You'll see houses that are still there around it. I can see the, the hills behind her hat. It's a wonderful opportunity to actually go on a trip in time. She has a, I love her hat. Oh, look at that hat blowing in the wind. I ooh and coo over these hats and, this, and these clothes. I wish I could wear them. Now, a key moment, of course, has just happened because the brother has found out that the concrete that is building this church is made of sand. They should shut down the construction, but unfortunately, 
his instructions are not going to be followed. Another key, another key moment in the film, and you'll see the consequences. Dan is a good brother, but he doesn't want to turn his brother in. Leatrice Joy is realizing that not only is her husband cheating on her, but he's also cheating on the people that have hired him to build this cathedral. He's cheating on his own brother. Everyone is learning the hard way in this Cain and Abel story. Now there's a point, you can, you can see where we're looking here across San Francisco. There's a point where you're going to look over Richard Dix's shoulder and you're going to see the Embarcadero. You're going to be able to see Alcatraz in the far distance. And we know that we're really up there. Now see that horse cart going by as, as the man collapsed? You look down there and you can, you can see everybody leading their little lives. I love it. We're doing the stunts very much the way Harold Lloyd did his stunts when he was working in downtown Los Angeles in the early 20s. They would build their set on the rooftop of an existing building, and they would build it in so that they had a secure platform all around the actual set so that if you fell, you fell maybe two feet. But looking in through the camera over their shoulders, it looks like they're 200 feet up. Old brick roadways, I love that. Now what we have that's happening is the concrete is very poor. They've been filling it full of jute and it's cracking already and they're not even finished in the construction. And Richard Dix knows it's got to stop. It's not gonna stand. And they're not, they're not mixing it correctly and there are going to be consequences. It's a real cause and effect thing and beautifully done. I'm looking over his shoulder and I'm seeing the cars parking and I'm seeing the people walking. I do a lot of that when I'm watching old movies that were shot in Hollywood at, the, uh, at this time too. You can see the hills with no houses on them. You can see the cable cars and the trolley cars going by. Richard Dix is absolutely right. He doesn't want anyone to get hurt or killed on his watch. And unfortunately, this unscrupulous middleman is standing in his way. One of the worst curses that you can visit on someone is to be responsible for your own children or your own parents' death. This is talking very, very seriously here. This is going to be shocking in 1923 for people to see. It's going to be very disturbing. And only because DeMille does it just the right way is it going to be palatable. A lot of what's coming up is going to remind you of Samson and Delilah. And there's a good reason for that.
Samson and Delilah was one of the last films that DeMille made. It was one of the six with a biblical theme, and it has very much of the same setup where you have a temple falling down. No one knows that the mother has gone into the cathedral to see the construction, to see how it's going along. We cut to her. We see that she is impressed and thrilled. That's where the Ten Commandments are going to be etched in stone on the, on the wall. If they knew that she was in there, you know they would run in there and they would get her. Dix has ordered everybody out and everybody off the site, and Mother has just gone in. Rod LaRock has a lot of denial in this film. And when I first saw it, I couldn't believe that he could deny himself and not face the facts. But I'm noticing now that it's plausible and that people's gift for denial is in some ways infinite because to face the truth would be to face the truth about themselves and their own character. He's lied to himself for so long that it's the truth. Now, if you watch that crack that's on the wall when the mother is standing beneath it, every time we cut back to it, it's going to be a little bit wider. It, there it goes. It's getting wider still. And the traffic out on the street that DeMille has shown you is rattling everything, is going to cause the crack to get bigger still and put mother in jeopardy. Rod LaRock doesn't really believe in God the way Richard Dix does. Look at this, look at how beautifully this is done. And it's coming, that's it. Just like in Samson and Delilah. That was, oh, beautifully done. And they think everything's okay. They don't know that anybody was on the site. But Mother is there. Rod LaRock is going to have to live with this for the rest of his life, so what he's going to do is just go into denial and just feel that it was just an unfortunate accident. It's going to take even more than this to shake him up and get through to him. At this point, his wife is being a wife and, care, and still loves him and still wants him to see the error of his ways and is still trying to comfort him. We know what he's thinking. We know how he feels. Now, that's the park. That's Washington Square Park where everybody is coming and running. These are all residents of San Francisco that are working for the day. What I like to notice is that all the men have on hats. All the men have on hats. Everybody running over here has on a hat. They have on a straw hat. They have on a fedora. They have on a cap. They have on something. Everybody wore hats then. I can't imagine construction people wearing hats on a construction site now. 
and all the people in the street. Beautiful shot there with the sun coming in on him and the realization coming across his face. And he's horrified and he should learn from this, but unfortunately he's not going to. Look at all the people and look at all the hats down there. And DeMille has told them all the story. He's told them why they're running across there, how it's gonna figure into the plot, how important it is that they're there that day working on this movie. This is a movie that their grandchildren are going to see. People are going to see it all across the world. He was really good at the pep talks. Now, Mother is just barely alive, but she has an all-important line here that's really touching and that I think speaks to the heart of what DeMille was saying with this movie. This is the great moment because Mother has seen the error of her ways as well. She understands everything that's happened. She's going to show us her capacity for forgiveness and mother love with what she says with her last breath to her son. Doctors would come to the patients in those days, make house calls, and this is probably the family doctor She's not going to make it. There's nothing to do, it's just a matter of minutes. But mother is going to make the most of every second of her life. And what she says could completely turn her son around if he would listen. Next time I'm in San Francisco, I'm looking forward to going back to this church and taking a look at it again. If nothing else, she has a moment to say goodbye, and the sons have a moment to say goodbye to her. And that's everything. The compassion and love and the quietness of this scene. It's not hokey, it's not corny. It makes its point beautifully. This would be very hard for a lot of the audience to take at that time, having seen so much death in the last few years. I built these walls and they're made of rotten concrete. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. That's the reason we saw Ramses building his city in the beginning of the movie. Now this is a little slow for us, but not at the time. Everyone is trying to adjust to what they're seeing. They're probably very shocked. 
Whatever you've done, it's all my fault. I taught you to fear God instead of to love him. To love him is all. And I think that's very much Jamil's philosophy. And I think the heart of the movie is in that title and in this sequence. Everyone grows and changes from this moment. And if the younger brother wasn't in such tremendous denial, he could go forward a different man from this point, but he can't face that because that means he murdered his mother and he can't face that. He's going to have to push it out of his mind or go crazy. And this is what DeMille means when he says, if you break the Ten Commandments, they will break you. And by cheating on building the building, he has stolen and he has committed murder. And we fade, and we, in a way, we go into a third story now. DeMille actually says it right here, if you break the Ten Commandments, it will break you. But he has another point to make, and so we go into the third part of our story. You see that little lion and the, and the warrior on the table in front of Rod LaRock? That was on DeMille's desk in the office at 2010. There are a lot of little things that I see around here that you see used in other DeMille films and that wind up in the office or in his Paramount office. If you take a look at Rod LaRock, you notice that he has a black armband on the left shoulder. That's something that's not done anymore, but I really think it should be revived. It means to strangers that when he's out on the street or he's doing business or he's out of his home, that he has had a death in the family. It means either a mother or a father or a grandfather or grandmother, or unfortunately, at that point in time in the, in the early 20s, it could even mean a child has died. But it's a tip off to people who are interacting with the person who has the armband on that they need to be treated differently, spoken to differently, that they're tender right now and that they're hurting and they're in mourning. I remember seeing a picture of Jack Pickford after his wife, Olive Thomas, had died and he had a black armband on as he was directing a movie on the set. Um, I think President Roosevelt wore a black armband when his mother died in the 1940s, but I can't recall seeing it from the 1950s onward, but it was the custom at this time to wear that black armband and you would also have a black wreath on the door so any mailmen or friends or family or tradespeople who came to the door seeing the black wreath would instantly let them know this family's in mourning be gentle with them whatever's going on that's the most important thing the death not whatever bill has to be collected or whatever you have to say or do. Rod LaRock is making it clear with his 
with his actions that he's going a little crazy because of what he's done to his mother. That rather than completely changing his ways, he's going off the deep end. We understand that he's not a bad person. He's just a person that right now can't live with what he's done. What he's going to do about it and how he's going to live the rest of his life is very important. He's thinking about suicide. He's thinking about murder. The Red Commandment. Now, what would that be? We would know in 1923 immediately that he is thinking about murder. This is Nidinaldi in a knockout dress. Look at this Art Nouveau candlestick. Look at, look at her room. Incredible. Once again, this is going to be very shocking for most people seeing this movie. It's a very revealing dress. Oh, this is a fun thing. If you have a chance, stop the DVD and read this entire two paragraphs of that newspaper story. It's very well written and it makes a couple of funny points. You just have a moment there to see that it's referring to her and her escape from Hawaii. Nita Naldi worked until 1928 in silent films and then when sound came in, returned to the stage. I think it's a case of obviously she had a good voice or she wouldn't have been a stage actress but her, probably her voice didn't match her incredible persona. I love this headdress that she has on. What he wants to do is he wants to take some of the jewels and stocks and money that he gave to Sally over, over the months that they have been together. It may have even been a couple of years and he thinks that she will help him out because, after all, he helped her out. But she's a vamp. Now, vamp means vampire. And it was a term coined in the teens. And it meant someone who's a parasite or lives off others. And that's definitely what she is. Notice her hands. Notice the way she uses her hands. Number one, it's a tip-off that this is the same person who came out of that bag on the docks. Number two, again, she's using her hands a lot like Gloria Swanson uses hers. I think in this case it's Gloria copying Nita. Just the name, Nita Naldi the rhyme of it. I just love it. People not only had great faces then, but they had great names. Agnes Ayers, Leatrice Joy, those are beautiful names. The thing about a really great silent screen actor or actress is they are someone that you want to look at. They're not acting naturally. If they were, we'd be bored to tears and we would be out of the theater and back home in our beds. 
You want to see interesting, exotic, different people. You want to learn about new and different things. And you want people that are interesting to look at. If they aren't, forget it. I think it was Betty Davis who said that she's an actress. It's not real life. She's acting. And that if she weren't acting and weren't making it interesting, you'd be bored and you wouldn't pay any money to see her. I'll definitely pay money any time to see a DeMille movie because everybody's interesting in them and everybody holds my attention. You sort of get an idea of how contemporary-looking Rod LaRocque is when you see his hair messed up like that. Her makeup is very exotic, but it's not going to look as harsh as it does here because in those days, you had nitrate film and it had silver in it. And before safety film came in, it was luminous when projected on a screen. We get another look at our wonderful little newspaper article. And like I said, take a little time out and read that article because it's fun. The fight here between him and her has a payoff that I, it just, it's amazing to me. The payoff, of course, has to do with the fact that she has leprosy. At the time, in 1923, everybody knew what that was. Of course, he's referencing the fact that Miriam had leprosy and that it's kind of a curse for being a bad person. But also, in 1923, everybody knew the symptoms, everybody knew what it was and that it was sort of a death sentence. And they would have no trouble identifying with this disease and identifying with the horror of it as far as Rod LaRock is concerned. It wasn't known at that time how you got it. I did some research uh, before I saw this movie again, and I asked a doctor about it, and he said that it is the least contagious of all the contagious diseases. You have to be exposed to it for a long time in close quarters, or you have to have an open cut or sore that comes in contact with the same thing on the other person. The problem is, is that he has been with this woman a very long time, maybe a couple of years, definitely month after month. She's telling him that she's given it to him. And just the thought of that absolutely horrifies him. and he commits murder. He's killed his mother. He's killed his mistress. He's stolen. He's cheated on his wife. I love her pulling the curtain down. It's her death throes, and you don't have to see her. We know what's happening. Again, one picture is worth a thousand words. And you notice that even in her dying, she knows she's been bad. She just decided she doesn't care. Rod LaRock knows he's been bad, and he does care. 
and he is genuinely frightened. He's frightened of what he's done now. He's frightened of God's wrath. He is almost unredeemable at this point. Now watch him carefully. Do you see what he's doing with his hand? He's putting his hand right on the candles. That is a reference for the audience. That is telling the audience, yes, he does have leprosy because the audience knows that if you have leprosy, you do not feel pain. And the first sign is not feeling pain in your hands and your feet. So yes, he was afraid he had it. She swore that she had given it to him. And by being able to put those candles out with his bare hands and not feel any pain, he has it. This is like visiting a plague on someone, very much like the plagues of Egypt. And he has to think he's a married man. Has he given it to someone else? But there is no place where a man may hide from his conscience. You can run, but you can't hide. I'm looking at the lampshade right now. I love that lampshade with the fringe on it. And it looks like it's made out of a kind of a rawhide top. He's looking at his hands, and he knows he has it. There's a discoloration in some forms of leprosy. There are several different kinds. But basically, the first thing that you notice is that you're, you have like what looks like a kind of a bruising, and it's sort of yellowish or brownish or greenish. In addition to the fact that you don't feel pain, you may have that discoloration. Some forms of leprosy stop after a short progression. Some continue for the rest of their lives. They're, di they're different strains. I would say Sally probably had the kind that probably arrested itself at a certain point. What he's going to do about it, how he's going to reconcile himself, is the main thrust of this third part of the story. But what he's really not going to be able to live with is the fact that he has probably, possibly, maybe, given his wife leprosy as a result of his carrying on with his mistress. Ship me somewhere east of Suez where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and a man can raise a thirst. That's the road to Mandalay, and it was a very famous poem, and little school children would learn to recite it in grammar school in, in the 19-teens and the 20s. Now he knows that the newspaper article is about the woman that he was involved with. And he doesn't even want to think about that. And you see, he can't stop looking at his hands, can't stop worrying, and now he's putting two and two together and thinking, have I given it to my wife? Oh, my God. 
how low has he fallen? He needs to tell her. Now this is Leatrice Joy in bed, stairs. That's why we referenced her. And I love her bedroom. When we get back up there, take a good look at the bedroom. DeMille was famous in his early movies, especially his silent movies, with his elaborate bedrooms and his elaborate and beautiful bathrooms. I love this bed. And if you take a look, the bed is on a platform. When I was in DeMille's house at 2010, uh, in the late 80s, I noticed that all the upstairs bedrooms had that platform. You put the bed up about mm -mm, three or four inches. And it sort of creates a frame. I love the drapery. Look at that table. Gorgeous bed clothes. I also love her nightgown. That is just great. Confession's good for the soul, and he's now confessing everything. She knew about the woman, of course. We saw her where she saw the necklace was going to the woman and not to her. And she's going, what is it? What are you talking about? What's happened? And now he tells her that he has leprosy and that he got it from her and that she may have it too. Now she is just as horrified as anyone at that time would be. She doesn't want him to touch her and she thinks perhaps she's got it and she's frantic. Like I said, there is no cure. It is the great biblical curse. And all through the Bible, anyone who was really bad was also a leper. It's unfortunate, but that, that was the times. And in 1923, they would exile lepers onto an island in Hawaii. If you touch me, I'll kill you. This is a good woman, but this is how frantic and frightened she is. Now, the police are investigating the murder, and they've put two and two together pretty quickly. And, of course, the servant in Nita Naldi's house saw him kill her. Now, look at this. She hides him perfectly. I love her bed, too. Look at that carving on the headboard and the beautiful fabric. She also has a great telephone. Where do you see the telephone? Didn't I hear you talking to someone? Oh, yeah, I was talking on the telephone. <laughs> I almost tried to kill my husband with that phone, but here it is. Look at that phone. It's covered in fabric. <laughs> you would only know that if you, if you were watching a silent movie and you could see that. Look at that beautiful fanning of the fabric behind her. You see the same thing in Cleopatra in 1934. They know he's in the house. There's his hat. No, I haven't seen him tonight. Notice that everybody is really wet because there's a big storm going on out there. And you're going to see on the left-hand side, there's a great lampshade. 
I'm going to ooh and coo over that lampshade. It's, it's really special. And you can look under the bed all you want. He's hiding right under your nose, and you have no idea. It's just, it's beautifully done. She gets the pearls, and she doesn't want them now. Even with everything that's happened with her husband, you notice she's still protecting him. She's still loyal. She still loves. Yeah. Ugh, look at that. Oh, I love her expression. <laughs> Who wants a pearl necklace? Ugh. The idea that she's hiding a murderer makes her guilty, too. She can go to prison for what she's doing. But it's instinctive, and she's just automatically protective. Nice oriental rug there on the floor, too. Well, now we gotta confront him. Boyish, I just love her. I love her reactions to all of this. If I believed in God, I'd ask him to bless you. Another key line. He doesn't believe. With everything that's happened to him, he doesn't believe. Like I said, I think he's just gone into complete denial. He can't live with himself if he's killed his mother. And he put the blame on to Nita Naldi. That's why he went and killed her, rather than kill himself. Isn't that a beautiful lampshade? Oh, look at the curtains blowing in the wind. And we've got another incredible rainstorm going on. And it sort of bookends. He met her in an incredible rainstorm. And he leaves her in the same kind of incredible rainstorm. There's a complete circle here. There's a reason why there's a rainstorm now. And there was one in the beginning of the movie where they met. She's beside herself. Uh, and it, it, she cannot get away from the fact that she's looking at her skin. She's trying to see if there's bruising there. It's night. The light's bad. Is she bruised? She's not sure. She's frightened. A beautiful fade. It looks like she's floating in the water. The mill was so artistic. I love it. She's thinking about killing herself by jumping in the water. We know exactly what's in her mind. We can follow everything that's happening and what she's thinking on her face. All right, she's gonna get up. She's gonna have to deal with things. We can tell that we're downstairs. We know he's been there because we see the broken bottle. She's gonna go after him. They're the little flowers that she believes he gave to her first. They're really from Richard Dix, but she doesn't know that. She's cherished them. She's held on to them in that book all these years. And she's, she's going. She's going to commit suicide. She's lost her husband. She's lost her life. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. A little dramatic, but beautiful. We're with her. We understand what's happening. Now we're in the docks, and he's going to try to make it to Mexico. But we got a tremendous storm, and God is so often associated with storms, especially in a DeMille movie. 
Notice the name of the boat, the Defiance. Again, everything fits in like a perfect puzzle. The Defiance means exactly what's going on with him. He's not gonna sit around and take it. He's going to defy the odds. He's going to get to Mexico. He's gonna run for it. Now we haven't seen Richard Dix for some time. He hasn't married. He works late. We've got another rainstorm and we've got Leatrice Joy in that rainstorm. She must be soaked. That's probably one of the carpentry buildings on the studio lot. They were real good at using everything. And that's a poignant, almost Mona Lisa shot of her. Oh. She's simply going to say goodbye and go kill herself. And she realizes now that she's always loved Richard Dix and that he's always loved her. That's her little dog, Richard Dix adopted. Obviously, Rod Rock didn't want a dog in the house, especially after he built such a show place. He knows the handwriting. He knows what it means. Now, I don't have time. You might be able to make out the words on that page that she tore out of the book. Obviously, that poem means something and fits into the story, but I've never had time to be able to read what's on that page to know exactly. Like the song of Mandalay that was referenced earlier, you might be able to stop the DVD and take a look at that page and see what it says because that will all fit into the story. Don't touch me unclean. She's in despair about it. And she was going to go down and jump off the dock. Notice the door said carpenter. And she will sit and she will tell him everything that's happened. And in the telling, in being able to talk to someone, in having a sympathetic ear, and someone therefore, it'll be almost like being cured. Now it becomes a little preachy here, but the people of that time would accept it, understand it. They've come for a sermon. They expect a movie called The Ten Commandments to be about the Ten Commandments and how it applies to your life even a modern-day life. Meanwhile, Rod LaRock and the Defiance are trying to get away. And kind of, you notice, you notice how that rock that he's going to wreck himself on looks a lot like Sinai. Again, it's a visual reference and DeMille's making a visual point. And we have a combination of a miniature inside the studio and a location shot of the speedboat going through the water in San Francisco, nicely combined. And we see the Ten Commandments up there. We see the tablets. It's perfectly done. 
you see what's in his mind. And the storm, God's wrath, and his own frailty will do him in. It was believed when you wrote scripts and you made movies at that time that if someone did something really bad, like kill someone, that they had to pay for it by the end of the movie. That even became the Hollywood Code. But this was before the Code, and DeMille still had the person who was bad and who didn't believe in God pay for his sins. And we have a beautiful shot on location at the beach showing that Rod LaRock is dead and he did not make it to Mexico and his suffering now is over. Back to Richard Dix and Leotris Joy where we get a chance to show a loving sermon, a loving story from the Bible as opposed to the mother who at the beginning told a very harsh story about fearing God. A very famous actress is going to be playing the woman who's a leper, and her name was Agnes Ayers. She was Rudolph Valentino's leading lady. She was very well known, and she's taken this small part because of its importance. This is a vital, vital, part of the movie where Jesus shows his love and compassion for the sick. You see that little tiny donkey in the background and his mother. Because this woman is a good woman, she believes and she comes to Christ to be healed, he will heal her and she will be made well. Agnes Ayers took this little part because of its importance in the story and who she's playing. Her hands are white again. The bruising is gone. Her skin is clear. She's well. She's filled with God's love and compassion. And she thanks Christ the only way she can. Richard Dix is extending the same compassion and understanding to his sister-in-law. And he's, he's saying, don't despair, don't give up, don't kill yourself. God loves you. Don't fear God, love God. You see a beautiful reflection in the glass there of her face. You see the sun coming up. Look at, look at the, you see her face in the wonderment. She looks across the city. And you know that a lot of what was going on was in her mind. She did not have enough contact with her husband. She does not have leprosy. It was in her mind and realizing that God loves her, and in the daytime, things aren't so frightening, and these two are now going to be together. Yes, in the light, it's gone. Your fear is gone. Your fear of the dark, and in the dark is gone. And you have a happy ending. 
but also you have a satisfying ending. This is Katherine Orison. Thank you for watching. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, especially Gaylord Carter's beautiful score.